thank our sponsor, Plant Forward. Plant Forward has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales, and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Plant Forward in Spring or online at plantforward.com. Thank you for joining us on Crime Scene today. So we're going to be talking with Sergeant Paul Haas from Montgomery County Sheriff's Office. In the past couple of episodes, we've covered some educational material, talking about different disciplines and crime scene and forensics. Today, we're going to be talking to Sergeant Haas, uh, co-host of the show, in reference to a case study. Uh, Sergeant Haas has been investigating homicides for close to 13 years, mm -hmm. and we're going to be talking sort of the uh, case we're going over is a case in which the murders had staged a crime scene trying to throw off the police, and we'll go over some of the details of that. One thing that's very unique with investigating a homicide is we'll talk about the many interviews and the people that we deal with along the way. It's known by most homicide detectives that we usually end up knowing the deceased better than most of the people that knew them, and one of the reasons because we talk to family, we talk to coworkers, we talk to friends, and as with anybody in their life, there are certain things you tell your best friend you may not tell your family, and there are certain things that you talk to your family or your spouse about that you don't tell others. Uh, we end up talking to everybody. We end up trying to find uh, how people know you, how you're connected to them, uh, things that you enjoy and where you possibly have been and what's happening in your life. So uh, we become very connected to these people and certainly have uh, the greatest respect for them and their families. So as we talk about a case and it's an interesting or exciting case to us. It just means that we're able to use our training, our tools, and the things that we uh, enjoy putting people in jail uh, for the purpose of giving justice to the family and Absolutely. getting that person off the street. So, uh, Paul, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So we're going to be talking, and uh, we're just going to be using first names in this uh, right. uh, out of uh, respect uh, for the family and those type of things. Um, but in this case, uh, this was a volunteer firefighter. Uh, his name was Travis. He was 21 years old and actually um, had a habit of helping people. Absolutely. And that seemed to be uh, a, a common theme in his life, uh, even to the point of being warned uh, by people that that may end his, uh, to his, lead to his demise, and inevitably it seems it did. So if you could tell us a little about, bit about Travis and sort of what his life was like and going on, uh, uh, he was married and those type of things. Absolutely. Travis was married. Uh, like you said, he was 21-year-old. He's a volunteer firefighter. His, his life goal was to be helpful to as many people as he can, just kind of help people along the way. Uh, he had been warned by his family. His, his father was a, a Houston Police Department sergeant. Uh, they'd all told him, said, look, you know, you got to be more careful about the people you help. We want you to be helpful. We want you to be that, that person, but be a little more careful about who you help and how much help you give. And, and like you said, that's ultimately what led to his demise. So uh, he was married. He was. Him and his wife were separated at the time of, of the homicide. So uh, to sort of um, back up, and I remember uh, looking at it, <clears throat> Uh, met his wife. They both worked at a local grocery store together. I think that's where they had met and, right. and started uh, dating. And as you said, they had they had separated. Um, sort of been on and off, uh, but they were still married at the time. Correct. It, 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 like any young couple, I mean, there there were things that uh, he chose to do, she chose to do that 
they weren't they weren't in the process of getting divorced, but they were separated, and, and they just were trying to work through it at a little bit of a distance. So how um, we sort of got involved in this, the uh, family had not heard from their son. Right. Tra- Travis talked to his, his dad and, and on an almost a daily basis. They were, they were buddies. And in this instance, uh, the dad hadn't heard from Travis in a little bit. Uh, so he came down to the Woodlands area where uh, Travis lived and asked for one of our units to check on him. Okay. And uh, obviously they go to check on him. What they end up finding there? They, well, they, they didn't get a response at the door. They heard music playing inside. They couldn't get an answer on the phone. Uh, the dad, of course, very concerned because this was very unlike his son. So they, uh, they got a key from one of the assistant managers of the apartment complex and opened the door. When they walked in, they found Travis laying in the living room of the apartment. It's a one-bedroom, one-bath apartment there. Uh, found him laying on the living room floor on his back. He was obviously deceased. Uh, they found a pill bottle in one hand and a liquor bottle in the other. So uh, normally finding um, alcohol, finding drugs, finding those things, uh, it, it would lead a person to believe that they had committed suicide or that they had overdosed in some way. Right. It, it would initially lead, especially someone that's untrained in, in crime scenes and stage crime scenes, it would lead them to believe that, hey, this person was either partying or just had had enough and, and ended their own life. Uh, there was a sheath of paper nearby Travis's head that the people that arrived on scene thought might have been a suicide note. Reading through it later, it wasn't. It was more of a, a diary of his life and where he wanted to go with life. But on first view, it, it appeared to be a suicide. Well, and that's one of the advantages that we have through our training in homicide is, you know, the, the way that you can tell that something is not a suicide is, is you've seen hundreds of suicides. Absolutely. You, you know what they normally look like. You know what you expect to see. And, and luckily, the general public doesn't know that. So when uh, they try to stage one, it it just stands out uh, immensely to someone who's been trained and seen those over and Absolutely. over. Sometimes more than others. I mean, sometimes it's glaringly obvious. In, in this case, in uh, the pill bottle, once you actually look at the pill bottle, was labeled dog warmer. Uh, it was for his dog, obviously, and it was a non-fatal to humans. You could have taken that entire bottle, and it might have given you diarrhea, but it wouldn't have killed you. So the, the next stage that sort of uh, just confirmed that what we're looking at uh, is a homicide, as y'all got a call from the forensic pathologist. So we were very blessed at the time the pathologist uh, was working on New Year's Day. This was New Year's Day 2007, uh, 2006 rather. And the pathologist was working on New Year's Day doing the autopsy, and she found that the hyoid bone was broken in half, the cricoid cartilage was damaged, and there was significant bruising around the strap muscles in the neck, which is highly indicative of a strangulation death. Right. I think uh, she had even stated in her report uh, that the injuries are consistent with heavy, constant pressure. That is correct. Yeah. So uh, at that point, um, you know, what do we do? So where, where's the next step? We have, you know, we have a person, and, and obviously that's where we start going back to what I said before, those interviews, right? Absolutely. We, we want to find out, like you said, we want to know more about them than they knew about themselves. Uh, we start with those closest to them. Uh, my first call, phone call, in fact, was to his wife find out where she was. She was actually several cities away. Uh, we start talking to best friends. We start canvassing. The apartment complex, of course, can be a wealth of information because you have a large number of people in a small area. So we start knocking on doors. And uh, we were able to find a couple who gave us vague descriptions of people that they had seen in and out of the apartment uh, in the overnight hours. So we start interviewing these people. And 
How long until y'all had a break in the case? Was it immediate? Was it days later? So it was the next morning. Um, and when I say next morning, we we worked overnight. Uh, I think we were probably on the scene 18 hours or so. Uh, we got home about 7.30 the following morning, went to bed, and got a phone call from the Houston Police Department. Uh, our victim's truck was missing, and we had aired an attempt to locate on this vehicle, put out a nationwide bolo on it as being related to a capital murder case, and Houston Police Department actually found the truck in their jurisdiction. So to clarify uh, for the listeners, uh, the difference between a murder and a capital murder? Absolutely. In, in this situation, uh, the, the difference is because there was a, uh, a robbery during the course of this or another felony committed during the course of this murder, and so in this case, they, they stole the truck. Uh, later okay. find they Most stole, of the possessions in the, in the apartment as well. Stole other stuff. Yes. Now, HPD, Houston, was not responding to a stolen truck. No, they weren't. They were responding to another robbery. Right. So, um, so the murders in this case uh, had left there and went on a crime spree. Exactly uh, what they did. To, to go and commit another robbery. And there was a statement that one of the murders said... Uh, at the uh, other robbery. Oh. The, the female suspect in this, and we'll, we'll call her Aaron, uh, actually told one of the people in there, you need to comply or you need to do what he's telling you to do and give us what they were looking for, uh, which in this case was more narcotics. Uh, said, you need to comply or, or you're going to be in trouble. We've already committed one murder, which right. is huge, especially when you're the case agent. So uh, they were taken in custody by Houston. Yes. Okay, so... To sort of walk us through how they ended up there, and we'll we'll talk about Erin because she seems to be a constant factor in this case, uh, mm-hmm. nearly the the catalyst or the key that sort of brings all of these people together uh, for this event to occur. Yes. So if you could sort of speak as to uh, her days leading up to or, or prior to this event. Sure. You know, Erin's a unique character. Erin was a 19-year-old female. She was raised by a foster family. She had had a very rough life. Um, Erin was a prostitute by choice, uh, or by trade, rather. Um, She's had ample opportunity to get out of it, but chose to stay in that lifestyle. She used it to pay her bills. She used it to pay for her drugs, to uh, bring other men in to help her commit her thefts and things like that. So she, she was an interesting character. She is not just the catalyst in this case. She is the reason that our victim's deceased. Right. So uh, now she'd been committing crimes. Absolutely. So besides uh, just prostituting herself in the area, uh, there was this not the first time she stole a truck. No, uh, previous to this, she had actually used uh, another situation where someone was helping her out and uh, had the second suspect in this, Danny, uh, help her steal this person's truck. So the the history behind that, she um, was working her normal area, uh, prostituting, and a male had picked her up, mm-hmm. uh, went back to a residence uh, where um, she had uh, had sex with numerous people there. Right. Apparently there's some argument that goes on uh, and wants to be taken back to where he had originally picked her up. Uh, and that's where... Uh, the second, or I should say the first, the first truck is stolen. Yes. Uh, which he seemed pretty much aware that, that something was about to happen. As as it's described in a statement, says that he's pulling up this other male, which ends up being Danny. Danny, Danny uh, starts to approach the truck. 
He ends up locking the truck, and uh, she uh, unlocks it, uh, apparently uh, assaults him with a, a, a spike like, belt. Like a studded belt, like a biker-type belt. Gets him out and steals mm-hmm. that truck. So what they end up using his truck for, you recall? I, I don't recall. So it's... Uh, but they seem to be using... Other people's vehicles, other people probably to basically just live. Right. Yeah, they, she doesn't, they don't have a vehicle of their own. They don't have any transportation of their own. Uh, their friends and family aren't driving them around because they're known to have drugs on them, and the family doesn't want to be involved in that. So apparently they, they've gotten rid of this truck at the time that uh, Aaron sort of enters the story with Travis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on, on the day they meet, uh, sort of give us the – the idea of what's happening. So like I said, you know, the, the autopsy was done on New Year's Day. So this all started on New Year's Eve of uh, January. Uh, I'm sorry, December, end of December. And it was very, very cold, very, very rainy, as is typical here in southeast Texas. And Aaron was walking down the street. Uh, our victim, Travis, was driving down and saw this thin, young, relatively attractive female walking in the rain. So he pulled over and offered her a ride. She accepted, drove him. Uh, had him drive her down to their house, which was maybe three miles from where he lived. Um, there, he met the, the boyfriend, Danny, and she asked if Travis would go back and, and get them some cigarettes. He agreed to do that. He drove to the store, picked that up, goes back, drops them off, gives them the phone number, so if y'all need anything else or want to hang out, let me know. So he had barely gotten home, and they called him again and said, hey, do you want to hang out? And see, actually, he had, uh, he had dropped her off, mm-hmm. and... Uh, she, she actually called, called, him called him back for the cigarettes. Right. So, and they they end up going to uh, a local Walgreens, which played a, a factor, uh, I know, in your case, mm-hmm. because you're able to get video that uh, corroborated the three stories of them together. that, that yeah. come together. Um, and, and very typical, it was minor things. They got some cigarettes, mm-hmm. some hair dye, and uh, right. just basic stuff. They're... Um, Obviously, it seems that that's sort of a glimpse into their lifestyle of how they lived. It was just moment to moment. Moment to moment, absolutely. And so he takes them back, he said, gives the phone number, mm-hmm. um, and then calls them back over to, to hang out. To hang out. So, and I know one of the conversations that they had um, uh, as time goes on is that it appears Travis really did not want to be alone. No, he, he was a lonely guy. Uh, he was actually in the process of moving out of his apartment, moving back in with his mom and dad, just let them kind of kind of help him get his life back together. The separation from his wife really bothered him. Uh, and so he, was, he didn't like being alone. Now, to be fair, he didn't have to be alone. There were many people in his life. That's true. But uh, they didn't uh, participate in... Uh, the use of some recreational drugs Correct. and drinking, and they did not approve of that, and that appeared to be sort of what he really was wanting to do uh, at, at that point in his at life. That point, right? And he was looking. He was looking to get away from that lifestyle, but not hard enough to to stop right then. So, the the next involvement that he has when he went to go pick him back up, what did they want to do then? They they wanted to party. They, they wanted to hang out at the apartment, uh, snort some Xanax and, and drink, but. Um, during the time that they're doing this, uh, you have uh, Travis's friend mm-hmm. uh, that had moved away, and I think he had like a, a washing machine or something. Correct. 
that uh, that he had said she could have. He was giving it away, absolutely. He didn't need it because he was moving back in at mom and dad's house. Which is, it was sort of strange that it was, uh, they come at, was like three in the morning? One, Some, it, it was extremely early. It was between two and three. So uh, normal time that you go to a friend's <laughs> house to pick up a washing machine, right? Well, and if I'm not mistaken, the only way, only vehicle she could get help with moving a, a pickup truck, the guy worked a night shift and, and had just gotten off work. So it, it was more of a timing issue for her. So uh, one friend, uh, a close friend that shows up for this, and uh, the driver, mm-hmm. uh, they show up while they're all there. Correct. And you interviewed them later, and uh, they were very suspicious of these of these two, of Aaron and Danny. They they kept asking, are you okay, are you okay? But asking Travis, are you okay? And while at the apartment, uh, what are some things they saw uh, with with Danny that sort of keyed them off? Well, I, I know one of the things that they, they said bothered them was that he, he appeared very, you know, possessive is maybe not the right word, kind of jealous about the way uh, Aaron and, and our victim, Travis, were getting along. Uh, she, they felt like maybe he thought they were getting too close to each other. And they had seen a gun that he had. Correct. And um, obviously were greatly concerned about that. But um, And they said he seemed like a, a just a rough character. But at no point called anyone no, for help. They, they didn't worry enough to give us a call. Of course, I mean, that's, that's actually, and sadly, uh, pretty typical uh, because there were drugs there. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was just Absolutely. the lifestyle he had, he had chose to lead at that time. And entering into that world, um, it's very common that, that people, even though they see things that uh, if it were not for that, they would be calling the police. They would uh, certainly be aware of, think they're in danger, but right. you dismiss those things. and You don't want the police coming there because there's drugs there and then your friends can get right. mad at you and, and all those things that come with that. Uh, so they... Um, pretty much had left and went somewhere else. Uh, I guess they took the wash machine. They, they, went. they took the wash machine and went back to their house. But at that point, uh, Danny and them needed to go somewhere else. They needed to pick something up. They had uh, left the apartment. Mm-hmm. So they, they had been staying somewhere else. They, they were staying with her family down in uh, another area of South County. So, again, they asked for another ride, right? right? So uh, at this point, Travis has not told them no on anything they've asked for. Right. Uh, and they, um, they head uh, to her, her parents, is that it? It's her foster family, yes. It's the house she was raised in from the time she was, uh, I want to say, 15 or 16 years of age. Um, and they were going to pick up the clothing that Danny had. Danny is actually from Houston. He lived in Houston at an address out of Houston. Um, but he had his clothes up there with her and had been spending some time since they'd come back with that stolen truck. At her house. So after they gather uh, some belongings, that's when they end up going back to the to Travis's back apartment. to Travis's apartment. Yes. So, and obviously you went through uh, many versions of the story in investigating it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what was the initial uh, when you first sat down with either Aaron or Danny? What was their initial statement on what happened that evening? So after, after the arrest, uh, the, the first statement was with Aaron. I did an interview with Aaron at HPD Homicide. Uh, her first words out of her mouth after Miranda was, I don't know why Danny killed that guy. I want to talk to my lawyer. So, of course, that ended her interview. Right. Um, subsequently, she, she called uh, 
called us collect at my office from the Harris County Jail and said she wanted to speak and end up giving a couple of different versions of the story. Danny, Danny was a five and a half hour interview after I spoke with Aaron. Um, he spent probably the first three and a half hours crying and not saying a word. And then when he finally broke and, and started confessing, uh, he told us that essentially step by step, what we just talked about, about him picking, about Travis picking uh, Aaron up, about them going back and uh, partying for a while. And he said that Travis passed out after having used some of the, uh, the drugs and drank some of the alcohol. Travis passed out cold. And that Aaron was standing there just looking at him. She said, I want you to hurt him. Danny said, well, what do you mean hurt him? Let's just take his stuff and leave. She goes, no, we're going to do that, but I want you to hurt him and hurt him bad. So Danny admitted that he put uh, his forearm over Travis's throat and pressed down with his other hand and just basically put all of his weight on Travis's throat until Travis he stopped breathing. Now, there's uh, people that talk about Aaron and her personality, and it, it seems to be fitting of mm -hmm. uh, what they say, that she was manipulative, that she would uh, use men, and uh, but was also very aggressive. Oh, absolutely. And, and volatile, and uh, so it's not surprising, but uh, that she would want to see someone harmed, and obviously uh, uh, now she had a different story about that when you finally got to talk to her. Right. Her version of the story was essentially that uh, – Danny was getting jealous and, and that Travis kept scooting closer and closer to her and that then Danny attacked him because of that. And that's why he was killed. So, you know, one of the questions that we, we always get in homicide from the public mainly is people want to know why, mm -hmm. right? There, there's always that why. And, and legally it's not really needed all the time. It's, you know, unless it's a self-defense or some uh, cause in which there would be a reason that someone would... Uh, you know, uh, commit uh, a homicide, but uh, it's something people want to know, mm -hmm. and and usually uh, the main thing that we can tell them is that a lot of times we're trying to look at these things with our morals, our beliefs, the way we were raised, and you're never going to be able to wrap your head around uh, why something was done right. because you're not going to be that other person. You know, and well, you're trying to apply rational thought to an irrational act most of the time and it, it's impossible now in this case and and you know it's it's an unusual case in the fact that you know i tell people that, that working homicide for the most part uh, is not as difficult uh, as some people think just because most people that actually take someone's life know them right it's one of the reasons why we start looking for where were you who did you know you who did you hang out with right. well in this case and in very rare cases, it's a stranger. This and was even a total though random, you know, stranger that uh, they met that day, which mm -hmm. still counts as, as a stranger, even though you have some interaction, uh, they didn't know them. But uh, so, was there ever the why, other than just the fact of going from day to day, uh, stealing stuff and, and going with life? No, I, I don't believe there was another why beyond that, other than. Uh, she enjoyed seeing people hurt. Uh, Danny actually described during one of his interviews that she got off to it, yeah, literally got off to him hurting our victim. So how long uh, was Danny and Aaron together that you know of their history? 
I don't remember how long. I mean, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a very long time. It was on again, off again for several years. But uh, this most recent, I don't remember how long they were together. So now with, um, you know, the jealousy aspect, and I saw that mentioned, um, you know, with Aaron making a comment, and then I think uh, Danny denying the comment, right. but then telling, um, I think, a cellmate later, and we'll talk about that, that, that he was jealous, you know, I guess just the rational thought again, Given right? Her you're, you're, right. And she's out <laughs> prostituting herself every night, uh, and you're going to Walgreens to use the money that right. she just earned prostituting, but you have trouble with the guy. Well, and, that, and like you said, he did apply his own logic to that. That's her business. He doesn't get involved in her business. Um, their personal life is different. When it's a personal thing, he gets jealous. If it's business, he doesn't. So now, speaking of the... Uh, the jail conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, there was a belief that uh, he was part of the Aryan Brotherhood or was at some point. Right. And I guess he felt comfortable speaking to someone connected to the Aryan Brotherhood. And that, of course, got back to us. Can you tell us sort of what he, he told that person, feeling more direct in that conversation? I, you know, I, I don't remember the, the entire depths of that conversation. I do, I do know that he actually had a conversation with a cellmate uh, that he felt comfortable talking to because of uh, their joint affiliation with one of the white supremacist groups. I think he had uh, said he wasn't, excuse me, Danny didn't, but the uh, the person, is his cellmate, basically said he wasn't part of it anymore. He, right. He had basically given it up. Right. He was not in. I'm not I'm not sure how that works, that you give it up or you're, you're not in it anymore. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the one thing that he seemed to confirm was that up to that point, Danny had been denying the whole jealousy thing. Right that uh, Danny had played it off that he was sort of just standing in the kitchen, um, really doing nothing uh, until... Drinking and, and using drugs. And, and, until Aaron seemed to encourage him uh, to this, but there was no... He didn't want to do this, in, in his words, uh, that uh, right. it was to impress her. He, he, wanted to, he wanted to blame it often on a, uh, a previous head injury that he had had, and that he, he claimed he wasn't uh, a smart man because of the head injury and that he would do just about anything that she asked him or wanted him to do uh, because he just couldn't think his way through it. Another excuse he used uh, a couple of times, I think even in his earliest confession, was that uh, he had warned that the, the drug of choice that evening was Xanax mm -hmm. and that he had said he had warned Travis That's right, that, yeah. that if he drinks and does Xanax, that uh, he does violent things, and he nearly used that as an excuse in the first one, and then uh, a very common uh, interview tactic that we've seen is the I don't remember anything Absolutely. because I was drunk or I was doing drugs, so I know nothing. Um, and, and the way to get around it, of course, was to walk him through all of his memories from just prior and just after that. Of course, he could recall those with no problem. Right. It's just what you don't want to talk about. You, you don't well, I don't remember anything. that part. Right. Yeah. So now there were um, things that were stolen mm -hmm. uh, and specific things that were found on them uh, at, at the time of their arrest. I believe it was at the time of their arrest, yes. So uh, I think Travis uh, had a, a chain. Mm -hmm. and uh, Just a necklace, a gold necklace. And then Aaron actually took his jacket. Right. And was so, um, in finding those things, uh, the 
the necklace was actually taken out of the property and it was uh from the jail property from the jail property yeah. danny's mother had it yes okay you remember that interaction between the mom and getting that i don't so she she had um well obviously that's where we got it back from right. right we had called her and asked her to come back and as as most family members that receive uh trophies from homicides they <laughs> have no desire to maintain or keep any of that stuff she quickly handed it back over uh, but it was another connection and a lot of people don't realize when we work homicides that confessions are great and, and we love them um it really uh you know satisfies a lot of the elements right. however it also means nothing if they can't give us some information that uh, no one else would have known. Something and confirmatory. It, and yeah. it doesn't lead to some specific evidence. And in this case, uh, it led to the necklace. Right. Um, on the Walgreens video, you have that, you have the jacket, mm -hmm. you have those type of things. So we can see uh, Travis in possession, and then obviously later we have them in possession. Uh, the jacket uh, came into play uh, in some forensic techniques to right. try to confirm this. So during the autopsy, there was a just an interesting abrasion on one side of, of the victim's neck that uh, I, I want to say it was almost like a, a ladder step. And uh, we were able to show later that it was actually the zipper from the sleeve of the biker jacket where he had pressed down into our victim's neck. So in, so in, in doing so, when we do those type of comparisons, obviously there's... Um, we take a to scale picture mm -hmm. um, of usually the real object and the injury and try to compare those two together, make sure they match up. And, and by all means, um, we can only say they're similar, right? There's, there's right. many it's jackets. Similar to and consistent with. Right. There's many jackets out there that meet that. There's, um, but the fact of a jacket meeting that, that he had, and all of that coming together uh, was just another solid piece of evidence. So when um, he actually, uh, he being Danny, uh, agreed to do a polygraph. Right. And, well, initially agreed to a polygraph. But uh, instead of getting on the polygraph machine, he just decided to confess to the polygraph examiner. Yes. Um, and, and really their, their stories to a point uh, didn't... Um, didn't change much other than the initial story that he couldn't remember anything, you know, and that, um, at that point, uh, he just starts elaborating more. And, and obviously with, with most interviews, it's just for the purpose to make them look better, uh, bring right. the other person. Um, in this case, did he ever say that Aaron killed him? No, he never actually made that, uh, that accusation at all. Um, the, so how did this, uh, basically end up at, uh, at trial? So what, uh, what was the, did it go to trial? So Danny actually took it to trial. Danny went to, uh, he decided to try to take it to court. He got convicted of, of capital murder and sentenced to life without parole. So what was the defense? <laughs> There, there really wasn't one. They tried to argue that uh, uh, we had done some things wrong on the case and so on and so forth. But So if, um, 
So did they both get, <coughs> excuse me, did they both get life? No, she actually pled guilty um, and took, I won't say it was 40 years. Okay. So uh, explain, I guess, that portion of it and the fact of how, uh, but they both get charged with capital? Uh, she pled down to murder. Okay. So, uh, in this case, we had, uh, uh, so in this particular case, what we had is uh, someone who had abused uh, some prescription drugs, and it actually uh, is a common uh, issue, a common thing that uh, uh, we deal with. Uh, the prescription drugs seem to be easier uh, to get a hold of. Uh, one of the common topics that uh, seem to be facing uh, law enforcement, just the community in general, uh, we talk about uh, heroin overdoses, and it seems to be a national uh, conversation when we're talking about um, heroin and, and uh, using uh, Narcan and those type of things. And actually, we get asked all the time if that is truly uh, something that is affecting us in uh, Montgomery County, in the Gulf Coast region of Houston metro area. And, and actually, it's not to the degree that we see it uh, up north. Uh, in talking to different agencies such as uh, New York and Baltimore and those type of areas, that it seems to be a daily occurrence that in dealing with uh, homeless or indigent or just dealing in the drug communities that they're having to use Narcan on a regular basis. And here in Montgomery County, even though we have uh, applied for grants, we've received those grants, we actually have uh, Narcan that is available to our officers. Uh, we have rare instances uh, that it does occur. Now, it does occur. We actually had one not more than a couple weeks ago uh, that we had responded to for an overdose and was used, and the person was uh, brought back to consciousness. Now, the, the idea behind Narcan is just a nasal-type spray that uh, basically uh, is an antagonist against the narcotic so it's for the purpose to correct their breathing, to bring their breathing back. And sometimes uh, they will come back excited, fighting, uh, because they've been under this depressed state uh, by their, uh, just by their body. So uh, it's something that we're aware of, and we have all the officers that have that. You know, another uh, drug that's of concern uh, to our officers is the fentanyl, uh, which, again, has narcotic in it that we have the Narcan for. And that has been something that we've had to do to uh, equip our property rooms and equip uh, our personnel with to make sure that uh, when we do have drugs that are turned in that possibly have uh, either uh, fentanyl or, or some type of narcotic base, that uh, if we are exposed to that, that our officers have the ability to quickly respond. Uh, the Narcan does not uh, work uh, to the point that it's corrected. Uh, they still got to go and, and seek hospital. In this particular case, uh, they were not using narcotics. Uh, they were using uh, Xanax, right. which is a, a again, a common uh, street, I say street drug, but it's, it's a common anti-anxiety medication. It's prescription medicine. Yeah. That uh, there are many people that that use this in low doses that, that go to work every day uh, mm -hmm. to deal with anxiety. Um, now, in this case, they also stole their drugs or stole the drugs that were right. there. Um, and uh, normally it's 
uh, an oral drug, but in this case they uh, were snorting it. Crushing it up and, and, and snorting it, yes. Uh, along with, with the beer and stuff. Um, do we know or did we ever find, um, I guess, people in Aaron's past that we could link to other violent acts or things like that? Nothing concrete. I mean, there, it seems like everybody that comes in contact with her ends up either in jail or or hurt somehow or another. But uh, nothing nothing quite to this extent. All right, so besides just speculation, that's really all we have as far as her life. Um, she was in foster care, mm -hmm. uh, but do we know how she basically ends up where she was at on the streets and taking advantage of these people. She, she had, well, she had been the victim of sexual assaults and assaults uh, through her, throughout her life. And she claimed that's what led her to start prostituting, found that that made relatively decent money for her, at least supported her. And uh, this was her way of kind of getting back at people, kind of getting back her own. So this was to a point, not a, uh, not a profession. I mean, it, it paid, paid the bills or paid the day-to-day -day life, but, right. but there was also uh, a point of her that it was uh, a way to manipulate, hurt, or cause. It was cause. all about the power. So in this particular case, she had power over, over Danny, certainly. Absolutely. Um, so once they were caught, this is always a question that's also asked, is was there any remorse? None whatsoever. Um, not from her, from Danny, yes. And, and his his remorse was, I'm sorry that happened to that kid. He seemed like a nice guy, which is not, it's not a real apology at all. I think it's more of, I'm, I'm sorry that we got caught doing it, right. or I wish I'd maybe just beat him up instead. Um, with her, there was never, never Aaron, any Aaron expressed nothing. Nothing. She, she wasn't concerned about getting she, caught or anything. She showed no emotion about it whatsoever. So now do you... Do you think as far as, uh, I mean, luckily in, in Montgomery County, we, uh, uh, I think we have a very, um, uh, our judges, our juries do a great job at uh, sentencing, I think properly. Oh, absolutely. We, uh, we work with a great team that's there that uh, uh, they receive uh, pretty substantial, um, you know, sentencing. Yes. Um, you know, in this case we have, now he is, in prison without the possibility of parole. He's Absolutely. there for life. Uh, she's got 40. Mm -hmm. So she has to do half. She has to do 20. and At least. At least 20. And that's assuming, of course, she can get out on her first hearing. Right, day. that's just to go to a hearing. Right. right. And, you know, sadly what we've pretty much found is that people that have manipulated and done those things, and um, that's probably not going to change too much uh, no, no matter what time not. they serve. Um, so now you had a unique, uh, relationship. And as I said before, something that, uh, uh, as homicide detectives sometimes uh, happens is we get very involved in these families and very mm -hmm. involved in these cases. And so, uh, you, uh, of course, uh, developed a, a relationship and communication with this family that has continued. Yes. Uh, for about the first four years after the resolution of the case, they sent myself and the, and the lead CSI uh, Christmas cards with the family, and it had a portrait of the, uh, the deceased in it. 
Um, I'd say for the next four years, and up until uh, the father retired from HPD several years ago, uh, we stayed in regular contact. You know, I think it's uh, it's important as far as these cases, and we talk about the the forensics and uh, the investigative tools, things that we do. Uh, the impact that occurs uh, at the loss of someone's life, a violent act, affects so many people. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, we we always acknowledge uh, the family and their friends and everybody else. It it uh, is something that hurts them. It hurts the community and, and beyond that. It's uh, you know, you think about um, even uh, Aaron's foster parents mm -hmm. uh, that they, are that are connected to this. And I don't, uh, I didn't hear much as far as Danny's involvement with anybody uh, other than than Aaron. I don't know if he had. He he had family, but they they had essentially disowned him uh, and had no contact with him for many many years prior to this. So was he from this area also, or what brought him to this area? He was brought to this area. Uh, he was from somewhere up north originally. I don't remember. I want to say it was uh, for some reason Minnesota is where I think he's originally from. But moved here at a very young age. Uh, worked in the oil field for a while until he received his head injury, uh, which was from a fight actually. And uh, at that point, he just stopped working and, and just kind of lived from day to day, like we were talking about. So we actually confirmed he had a head injury. This wasn't something he it had was made a real up. head injury. Yeah, we, we actually were able to find the report. It happened in Houston. Uh, he got into a fight. Somebody whacked him in the head with a, a liquor bottle and, of course, almost killed him. And it was over Aaron. So this, so they had obviously been together and, and other. Mm -hmm. This was one of their one of their times on. You know, I said earlier they were on again, off again. This is one of their times on. He had. Uh, he had gotten in a fight with a guy. I want to say it was a uh, one of the Johns that got a little too rough, and he she had him step in, and of course he almost died because of it. So in in this case, me was he actually sort of act, acting as her pimp, or was it just a boyfriend who? No, he was just a boyfriend. He didn't he didn't have anything to do with the business side of it, per her own words, uh, except when she needed somebody that could, you know, maybe protect her while she went to collect or, or whatever the case may be. But now they did work together, like we talked about the first truck they stole. Obviously, they worked together. On oh, the criminal people. enterprise, yes, just not in the prostitution side of it. So, as far as their their history together, um, what type of acts did we have? Robbery before? Did we have just assaults before? What uh, what things? Mostly assaultive in nature. I mean, we have the one robbery where they took the truck from the guy. Right. But beyond that, it's mostly assaultive. Which is, it's, it's another one of those things of the, uh, the drug world, the drug uh, part of it, mm -hmm. is like they were arrested at a robbery, right? They had pointed a gun. Um, if they would have left that location um, just by experience, they probably wouldn't have even talked about that robbery with the police. I would assume not, no. You know, it's, uh, it's very common for those type of robberies to occur, and I know we've seen them in many of those lead uh, to deadly acts that uh, are just part of that yes. that drug culture. And there's one thing that we talked about earlier is that, you know, a lot of times it's easy to find out who committed a murder because of the connections. Right. Um, a lot of those things go out of the window uh, when you're dealing with the drug community or uh, the gang community. Absolutely. Because they do not hold life at the same high value as, as most people do. And usually the interactions are relatively random. I mean, you may have some connection where they've 
they've made the purchases from them before, but it's usually not their real name. It's usually a nickname. It's a throwdown phone or whatever the case may be. And in most cases, it's um, it's an impulse type of thing. I mean, would you have any reason to think that when Travis picked Aaron up in the rain, that Aaron at any point during that ride said, I'm going to kill him. Absolutely. I'm going to have him killed. No, it wasn't until they got to the apartment and saw that he had some, and even though the apartment was mostly emptied, he had some nice things. He had a nice truck. He had a motorcycle. Um, she started seeing these things that he had that they decided that this was what needed to happen. And that's always made me wonder. You, We've had a couple of cases where people are killed for their vehicle, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, again, it goes back to the sort of the, not really the why, but the how in the world do you expect to maintain this large object and, and not be caught, not be found mm -hmm. out? Um, and I guess that just goes back to a, a mindset that is not thinking clearly. Right. Uh, it's living in the moment. Um, so if they had not been caught on that particular day, obviously the next robbery had occurred how soon after? It was just within hours. I mean, they, they drove down into Houston. They went to pick up uh, more drugs. And this was a dope house that they, they were hitting when we got caught. Um, it was just within a couple of hours. It took them time to unload the stuff from his apartment into the truck and then to drive off. Do you think they felt someone was onto them at that point? No, I don't think so at all. In fact, when, when, they, were, when they were arrested, they didn't mention anything about any of this. If I remember correctly, they tried to give some sort of uh, excuse as to why they had this truck, and it surprised them that it was connected to a murder in Montgomery County. Oh, the de defendants like they said they Yeah, they essentially surprised. they had borrowed the truck from somebody. Well, I know in, in a previous, uh, the previous incident where they had stole the truck, uh, they had made comment to friends that it was mm -hmm. a loaner truck. So, right. Um, seemed to be a running theme with them. Well, and it, it seemed to be the perfect angle from her prostitution mm -hmm. business because obviously uh, men that employ prostitutes are probably not as quick to call the police when their truck gets stolen or when their wallet right. gets stolen because they were involved in legal activity to begin with. So she had the, uh, the perfect victims up to that point. Uh, in this case, um, I, I agree with you. I would expect that they did not believe that they were going to be found that Travis uh, would be found. And, and certainly they thought they had the perfect plan because... They, they had actually gone a step further. She had taken, again, this was January, it's very cold. Uh, she had taken the thermostat in the house and lowered it to its lowest setting, which was something one of our patrol deputies noticed while he was there. And during the interview, they admitted that they had done that to keep him from decomposing as quickly, give them more time to get away. So where do you think they were headed? I mean, because obviously they're still staying they in Houston. Houston. They had I mean, no plans beyond Houston. So it, it was still just a day-to-day. Hour-to-hour. I, I would go so far as to say they didn't think ahead that far. But do you feel that they felt the suicide thing was going to fly? I think they probably did. Um, just by the way they had set it up. They, if they had taken time to read the letter that was up by his head, they would have known it didn't appear to be a suicide note. Uh, they obviously didn't know anything about dog wormer. But they, they felt that that was going to buy them some time and let them get away with it. Now, one challenge that you had uh, with the note, and even though it was a diary and not so much a suicide note, but uh, just another uh, forensic tool and forensic things that we have to do, 
is uh, handwriting analysis mm-hmm. to say, you know, is that so? So, so what are some steps that you had to take to to determine that? Well, one of the things we'd had to find somebody who's actually certified in handwriting analysis, and that's actually really difficult. It's not as many people out there that can do it for court purposes as you would think. Uh, if I remember correctly, in this case, we used one of the FBI analysts. And where did you get, you have to get known handwriting. Correct. Obviously. We get a known sample. With him, it wasn't that difficult. We had letters and stuff that he had written to his parents. Uh, we had some of his personal writings from uh, paperwork that he had in, in his in his possession at the time. So how long did it take? Because obviously dealing with the FBI, normally those type of specialties, you're having to send that to Quantico? Was there yeah, somewhere it has could... to be sent off. I, I don't remember exactly how long it took, but it was one of those things that we said to the crime lab, hey, we need this done. They send it off. When they get it back, they let you know, yes, it is, or no, it's not. And usually in those cases, just from our experience, especially in dealing with large labs that have numerous things that they have to do, uh, it's six months, it's sometimes a year. That's early, it's, it's six months, yes. You know, so uh, this, as many people say that, you know, we want this done, we want that done, it it can't always be the deciding factor. In right. Words, that, that can't be the uh, the big piece of evidence because we're not going to get it quick. You better enough. hope that's not what you're resting your case on because you're, you're not going to make it by the time you get to trial. So if, um, if Travis... Would have continued down his path. Obviously, we're just speculating the fact that you know he was having destructive behavior. Been talking mm-hmm. to many of his friends, uh, they seemed that he did have a desire to stop uh, uh, the recreational drug use, mm-hmm. to stop That's living that right. life, and that he he really, uh, as many twenty-year-olds, had made some dumb choices, and uh, if would have lived longer, would probably. Uh, have grown out of those choices and maybe he would have probably become a very very beneficial part of society in one manner or another the uh, the biggest mistake uh, in this was uh, helping someone that uh, that's right. such as Aaron just a bad interaction that's that uh, that led down this road so uh, with that um, were there any lessons that uh, you could say that you took from this uh, that uh, I guess assisted and helped or, or built some tools to, to go into some other cases? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were some things, and without getting into the details of, of why, I've learned during, uh, during your interviews, make sure that if you're in charge of the interview, you're watching everything that's going on. Uh, there were some things that happened that nearly cost us the interview with Danny and all subsequent interviews. Um, make sure that you know what's going on during at, at your interview room at all times so that these things don't happen. Um, I learned that some of the most innocent victims still have some things in their life that uh, can lead to their demise. So now you talked about interview rooms. The um, Most interview rooms are set uh, so that someone else is watching from the outside. And one of the main reasons that we do that is because many times when you're in that interview, you're so involved uh, in that conversation that, as you said, you don't always see what's going on. and Strangely enough, you don't always hear right. what's going on. Absolutely. Uh, and so you you have that second set of ears or third set of ears or how many are people we can fit in the, in the well, room. You know, good, uh, interviewing is one of my favorite aspects of, of criminal investigation. And a good interview, uh, it, it's really like a game of chess. There's no, hey, it's just a conversation. I may make it seem like it's a conversation, 
but I'm thinking three, four, five steps ahead. And during that process, while I'm using part of my brain to continue this conversation with you and not let you know that that's where I'm thinking, I may miss what you're saying because I'm trying to think here, okay, if you go this direction, how do I counteract this? Or how do I, how do I recover from this slip up or, or whatever the case may be there? So sometimes it's nice to have that, that other person listening that can shoot your text, go, hey, he just said X, Y, Z. No, I know there's many times that uh, in listening that closely, you can see things that they're avoiding sort of in, oh, yes. in, in his, that uh, they'll talk about everything up to and leaving that one portion out, which can give you an idea of when this occurred and where we need to focus right, on. Right, absolutely. So the forensic evidence we received uh, between the uh, matching of the jacket, mm-hmm. uh, between obviously the confession of how he did it along with uh, the uh, forensic pathologist report that uh, pretty much matched how he did it. Very consistent, yes. So uh, all those things uh, made a solid case, and that's uh, one thing that a lot of people don't initially understand with the work that we do is we get a confession, like, great, put him in jail. And uh, <laughs> just getting started. And there's still months <laughs> of work to do, many interviews to do, and uh, it's just important to us to find the back history. That's one of the main things that we've talked about uh, today uh, to make sure that uh, we have all those holes covered right. so that when we end up at trial, that our biggest uh, part is to uh, make sure that uh, the person that did this uh, goes away for a long time. It's the most justice that we can get uh, for our victim's family. Because let's, let's face it, the, the victim's not around anymore. We're doing this for their family, right. uh, for the people that they had touched and were a part of their life so that uh, uh, they feel some type of closure as though we know there's, there's never a closure in this, right? Right. It's not going to bring the victim back, but at least the family will feel like someone is paying the price for what was done. Right. And in this case, we had uh, two. That, uh, we had two. Uh, and luckily, it didn't go very long. Uh, right. You know, they were in jail in a short period of time. Uh, that family at least knew they were off the street. Uh, they didn't have the questions as, as many do that uh, um, are... People are still out there. Cases right. are unsolved. Uh, and those are the ones that uh, we work very hard to try to uh, clear up because last thing we want is an unsolved case uh, that's uh, out there where we still have someone doing these, these type of crimes. Absolutely. And the longer it takes to solve it, the harder it is to solve. So, uh, so we are uh, wrapping up. And in wrapping up, uh, I did want to give you a moment, something that you do uh, on the side, uh, something that, uh, uh, as, as all of us, we, we uh, get away from the stresses of, of our work as much as we enjoy what we do, uh, something that uh, you do. Uh, you yeah. uh, run a, a farm and things. So We do. We run uh, a, a poultry business on the side. So how would someone find your website and your stuff on there? So if they will go to redgatefarmstx.com, Uh, It'll lead you to our website, and on the website, there's three different directions you can go with it. You can either go to the poultry page, which will tell you how to purchase our poultry products, Uh, the furniture page, which is Lone Star Furnitures, or the the Feathered Nest, which is my wife's business that she runs on the side as well. Uh, All of our poultry is pasture-raised, no antibiotics, no chemicals. It's about the freshest, best type of meat you can get. Well, Paul, thank you for coming out today, and we appreciate you sharing your story with us. And we hope the people uh, learned some stuff and enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.